Good morning, everybody. Um, you've got the sheet before you on the table. And we continue with our Old Testament Bible stories. And so we're going to continue with our Old Testament Bible stories. We've covered like Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 53. We've looked at uh, Genesis, the creation account, etc. I want to move to 2 Samuel 11 and 12. So if you've got your Bibles, you want to open up to 2 Samuel in the Old Testament and then find chapter 11. This is a very familiar story in the Old Testament, David and Bathsheba. So once you find 2 Samuel 11, then you want to look at the sheet, because we're going to connect these two chapters in 2 Samuel together with Psalm 51. I'll say more about that in a minute. I'll let you guys catch up and find 2 Samuel. Are there any, any questions about what we covered from Isaiah 53? Denny, you need another Bible? A big one, big print. Here, give this one to Denny. He wants this one right here. Okay, here we go. This is. There we go. That's a bigger print. Sometimes the little print's hard to read. I realize that the older I get, indeed. So, Old Testament, 2 Samuel, and you want to go to chapter 11. And once you've got that marked, just keep it marked and then go to the sheet that I've given you. I have Psalm 51 at the front part of our study today because David wrote Psalm 51, which is a penitential psalm. That is to say, it is a psalm of repentance and faith. And then connected with that, David's desire, according to God's word, to lead a God-pleasing life according to not David's word, but God's. So I'm going to repeat this. David wrote Psalm 51 after he committed adultery with Bathsheba, after he, after he murdered her husband, Uriah, and after he lived for an entire year as if it was all good. He married her, made the pregnancy look legitimate, etc., as we'll discover. But for an entire year, he covered this sin up, all these sins up, the uh, coveting, the adultery, the murder, Ultimately, the idolatry, because when you break one commandment, you break the first. As, as you've learned, the first commandment is the most important of all the commandments. So if you break one, like the tenth, coveting your neighbor's wife, you've broken the first. So he lives an entire year thinking it's all good. And then Nathan comes to him. God sends a pastor named Nathan to David, confronts him with all these sins. And David confesses the sin and is absolved. It's only after that that David writes Psalm 51. Now, I, the, most people don't realize this, and most people don't realize that David wrote most of the Psalms, which is another, there's another side note. So the Psalms in the Old Testament were the Old Testament church's hymnal and prayer book. David used the Psalms as hymns and prayers, which we need to relearn, by the way. So if you've ever wondered why, you know, when, you, when we have an evening service like during Advent or Lent, we always sing a psalm. And during the Sunday service, the intro, it, it's always a psalm because the psalms are the Old Testament prayer book and hymnal. That's a side note. Now look at the, uh, look at the psalm on the page. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Well, David needed that big time. And he received it, of course, from God through the prophet Pastor Nathan. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. See, my point is this. Uh, David could only pray like this after he had been confronted with his sin and, and confess it and then be absolved of it. 
My point is, negatively, is if, you, if, if, a, if a person has sinned, won't repent, won't receive forgiveness, they can't write a psalm like this. That's my point. But he has, and therefore he writes this way. He knows what God's up to. God has mercy on what kind of people? Sinners. So let's continue. Verse 3. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Even when he for an entire year denied it, he knew that to be true. But God sent a pastor to confront him with it. Side note again. A pastor's work is dicey business sometimes. Sometimes the pastor has to tell someone, what you're doing is not God-pleasing. And sometimes the reaction is not very pleasant. Maybe it's two middle fingers, maybe it's a door slammed in his face, or maybe it's get out, never come back again. That's what I mean, dicey business sometimes. In any event, let's continue. Against you, King David says in verse 4, that's God, you only have I sinned. That's the truth and done what is evil in your sight. So you see the Holy Spirit was at work in that word of law to confront David with his sin, and in that word of gospel that forgave him his sin. The Holy Spirit was at work in both those words. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, David says, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now David's not saying in verse 5 that when his mother and father had intimacy that that was the sin. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that from the very moment of my conception, I am a, I am a sinner. That's another important point that David learns and then confesses from scripture. So let's learn the biblical truth. Kuhlman became a sinner when? The very moment of my conception. Yeah, but he hadn't done anything. Doesn't matter. You inherit that disease, if you will, from Adam and Eve. Everybody does. We all inherited it. Okay. And so since I inherit this sinful condition, therefore I do evil deeds, I think evil thoughts, etc. Don't flip it. Don't flip it. Don't say, well, I don't sin until I actually do something wrong. Eh, that's not correct. Okay. By the way, that's why in the hymnal, you've got your hymnals on the table. Take a look. We're never going to get through Psalm 51, but that's okay. <laughs> you know how it is with me. I think page 184 ought to be the ticket here, or 100, uh, let's see, 180, yeah, 184. Or perhaps maybe 151, let's see, maybe that's even, we'll illustrate this even more, let's see. Yeah, go to page 151, that'll, that'll do it even better. Page 151, here's, here's one, Kara, got one, thank you. Page 151, the middle of the page in the hymnal. Most merciful God, we confess that we are by nature sinful end. That's Psalm 51, verse 5. Do you see that? Okay. And we've sinned against God in thought, word, and deed. What blows people's minds is that we actually sin against God, not, by, not only by what we do, but even by what we think, what's in our minds and hearts. More on that later. Okay, now let's continue with Psalm 51. Verse 6, behold, you delight in truth and in the inward being. That is to say, God delighted when David finally told the truth. I have sinned against the Lord. Okay, God was delighted in that. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Namely, when David told the truth, I have sinned against the Lord. And then he believed another truth, which was what? 
I'm forgiven for Jesus' sake. Let's continue. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. This is talking about forgiveness. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Again, talking about forgiveness that he received from God through Nathan. Eight, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Interesting. Just do this on your own. Read the Psalms and just, or do a concordance study or do a Google search. Bones in the Psalms. That'd be, that'd be easier. Google search, bones in the Psalms. And this is a constant repetition in David's Psalms that through the preaching of the law, namely that you're a sinner, it like breaks your bones. <laughs> Here's another, I can't, you know, all of you parents with young kids or raised kids, you know, you put the poisons under lock and key most likely, right? Because with the poisons, they've got this warning label with the what on the warning label? Skull and crossbones, right? So our sinful condition is like this. Okay. So, and then verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. That's the preaching of the gospel, that we rejoice in that. Hide your face from my sins, Lord. Blot out all my iniquities. This is why the Bible speaks about God forgetting our sins. I don't forget sins that have been committed against me. And I don't, I usually, unless I get Alzheimer's and really get dementia, I don't forget sins that I commit against other people. But God chooses to forget for Christ's sake. Okay. Blot out my iniquities from your mind and your heart, God. 10. Now here, this is interesting. Keep in mind, I told you that David for an entire year lived as if he was hunky-dory with God after he had committed, uh, uh, coveted, adulterated, and murdered. And for an entire year, he was in deep spiritual trouble in his denial. Therefore, verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Right spirit would be what? I'm a sinner and I need forgiveness. Let's keep going. Cast me not away from your presence. David had to learn this. He prays this way. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Because if God takes away, that is to say, if the Holy Spirit departs from us, we will end up where? in unbelief, and where will we end up ultimately? In hell. So we sing these words, don't we, after the sermon. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. We're praying Psalm 51. So now if you didn't know this, now you know why we're doing this. We're like David. Let's not pretend that everything's hunky-dory. We need to get right with God. We need to tell the truth about our sinful condition. We need to receive his forgiveness so that what won't happen? So that he will not withdraw his spirit from us. Because if God does, it's over. And David was in that spiritual condition at this time, and he was in deep trouble. So thanks be to God, he sent a pastor. <laughs> Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. So the joy of your salvation would be you're forgiven for Christ's sake, and a willing spirit would be what? David would then what? He would want to live faithfully according to whose word now? Not his, but now God's. Verse 13 then I will teach transgressors your ways. So notice King David was used by God to write these Psalms to teach us God's ways. Tell the truth about your sinful condition, but then also believe the truth that you are forgiven for Jesus' sake. And God used David to do this. And he uses you to do that as well. 
and sinners will return to you. How do you spell sinners return to you in the Bible? How do you spell it? F-A-I-T-H. Okay. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Why not? Because God is interested in what? Your heart. That's what he's after. Okay? The sacrifices of God are a what? This is the point. A broken spirit. That's what he's interested in. So, I mean, you, you can do this. You can say, well, I gave my offering today at church, Lord, and that, that is God-pleasing if it's done in faith, of course. But God is most interested in the condition of your heart. Is it right with him? Do you trust in him? Etc. Okay. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. This is in reference to the church. The church is built up when sinners are being brought to repentance and faith. Then you will delight in right sacrifices. And so David describes faith in these terms. Right sacrifices, repentance and faith, burnt offerings, whole burnt offerings, bulls will be offered on your altar. He uses the sacrificial language of the Old Testament, but he's referencing repentance, faith, and holy living in those words. Okay, so to sum up, we read this psalm very briefly in a fly-by fashion to illustrate that David wrote this psalm only after he was repented and faith by Nathan the prophet in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Only a man who had been repented and faith could write this psalm. And so you too. Only you can understand what this psalm is about when you've been repented and faith by the Lord. Especially what we sing in church. Create in me a new heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Right spirit is spelled F-A-I-T-H. I hope this was somewhat helpful. Any questions about that? Now let's look at 2 Samuel 11. Are you all there? All right. So, verse 1, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war. Why in the spring do kings go off to war? That's because during the winter, that's the rainy season in the Middle East, and it's muddy, and you can't move your infantry, and you can't move your chariots in the mud. So you have to wait for the rainy season to be over, and you've got to let it dry up. So kings would go to war in the spring. Is David king? Yes. Let's find out what he's doing in the spring. So in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab, that's his general. He farms it out. <laughs> he sends Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, and they destroy the Ammonites, they besiege Rabbah. And where's David? He's not leading his army, doing his God-given task. He remains at home in Jerusalem. Now let's learn something here very important. When you don't do your vocation, you can get into trouble. In other words, if you don't do the work that God's given you to do, you can get into trouble. And that's precisely what happened. In other words, David's not being a king. He's farming it out. The kings lead his armies out to war, but he farms it out and he stays at home. And he can justify it all he wants. But he should be leading his army, defending his people. So he stays at home, not doing his vocation. So, so let me try make this even more concrete. When a father doesn't do his vocation as father and he abandons it, family is in trouble. And you can flip it with mothers, etc. Okay. Pastors. When pastors don't do their vocation. <laughs> make sense? 
when a student doesn't do their vocation, they get into trouble. Make sense? And let's see what kind of trouble King David gets. What's the old proverb? Idleness is Satan's what? Playground? Did, did the Germans make that up? Probably, who knows. So, verse 2. So one evening, David's got nothing to do because he's farmed his duties out to Joab. One evening, David gets up from his bed, walks around on the roof of the palace, flat roof, flat roof, that's why he can walk around, okay? And from the roof, he sees a woman bathing, and the woman is very beautiful. And David, verse 3, sends someone to find out about her. And the, the guy comes back and says, well, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? Now we have to stop and pause here. If you continue to read 2 Samuel, you will be told that David knows Uriah. He's one of, Uriah is one of King David's mighty men, to put it bluntly, one of David's bodyguards, if you will. They know each other, and no doubt David knows who Bathsheba is as well. So they know each other. Now, this leads me, and I'm speculating here, the text doesn't explicitly say it, but <clears throat> I'm going I'm to make a general statement or a general observation to make my point. It may not be true with all of you women, but I think it will be with most of you. When you ladies, whether you're a young lady or whatever, <laughs> mom, mom, young moms, young mothers, <laughs> okay? When you take a bath or when you take a shower, generally speaking, you shut the door, you close the shower curtain if you've got one, and you lock the door usually. Maybe you don't, but you at least close it. And if your brother or some other male walks in, what do you scream? Get out! I'm taking a shower. Get out! Not in this case. She's, she's taking a bath so that someone will see her on purpose, I contend. Why? Because they know each other. So this is a two-way street, by the way, I think. David not only wants her, but I think she wants him. Because women don't do this normally. Now, maybe in the Middle East they did, but not in our situation. Okay, You understand my point? So she's bathing and she's beautiful, which leads me to believe that she wants him as much as he wants her. And they, pray, they play this pretend game that they don't know each other. That's how you justify this stuff. But everybody in the court knows this is not true. You know. So, let's pick it up. Verse 4. David sends messengers to get her. So he covets her, and then he brings her to his palace. She comes to him. Now, on the one hand, you can argue, well, who can say no to the king? Because if you say no to the king, you're in deep trouble. But she comes to him nonetheless, and the text says that he sleeps with her. So he's broken which commandment so far? He's broken the tenth. He covets her because she is Uriah's wife, not his. And then he brings her to his house, and they commit adultery. Sixth commandment. And ultimately, they're breaking which commandment? The first. They don't fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Let me illustrate this point again, why the first commandment is the most important, and why all the other commandments flow out of it. So many of you have heard this story before, especially you former students of mine in catechesis, but when I grew up in Wyoming, we had open campus at Glenrock High School, which meant you ate lunch in the cafeteria, and then until your afternoon classes started, you could roam around town. 
<laughs> Wouldn't that be fun? Roam around Murdoch. <laughs> like there's something to do in Murdoch. But in Glenrock, you, you could go to the grocery store, you could go to the drug store, and I always had cash in my pocket because I, I would scoop snow in the winter, I would help my dad in the summer in plumbing and heating, and I'd, I'd mow lawns, so I, I was flush with cash. And we'd go to the bank, and I'd always make deposit. What's that? What happened? Well, I'm, I'm depending on you for that. She's flush with cash now. And by the way, welcome home, Mrs. Coolman. Good to see you. <laughs> so we were in the grocery store during, uh, in between uh, lunch hour and going back to classes, and I'm with two of my best friends, Skip Bohm and Randy Barham. We go to the grocery store. We don't buy anything. We come out of the grocery store, and it's winter, of course. So we've got our winter coats on. And as we exit the grocery store, Randy pulls out a bag of licorice that he stole. I was absolutely shocked. Now, he broke the seventh commandment. But why did he break the seventh commandment? Because he didn't fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Now, I didn't steal. Why? Because I, I didn't want to break the first. See the point? And so David, he doesn't fear, love, and trust in God above all things. He thinks he's in total charge because I'm the king. I can do whatever I want. And I can justify and spin it, and everybody will have to just believe it. And thus he adulterates, etc. Any questions about that? All right, so we read these passages of Scripture. Keep in mind, Kuhlman's not reading this, and I hope you're not reading this to say, oh, I'm better than King David. No, you're not, and I'm not either. Okay. Shall I illustrate that to you? Has, has Pastor Kuhlman committed adultery? Have, have you committed it? Yes, yes, I have. Now, have I taken another woman to bed? No. I have not, but I have broken the sixth commandment. Go to Matthew chapter 5. Keep your finger in 2 second, second Samuel. I'll pick on Kuhlman, okay? That's an easy target, easy pickings. Matthew 5. Again, the point I'm trying to make here is as we read the scriptures, let us learn that the Holy Spirit uses these stories to show us that we are no better and we need God's forgiveness just as much as David does, just as, just as much as Peter does. So again, don't read these stories thinking, well, I'm better than David. I'd never do anything like that. Well, lo and behold, we all have. Maybe not physically taking someone to bed, but we've done it here in our hearts. In Matthew 5, let me catch up with you. Um, let's see here. Yeah, 27. Now again, this is red letter edition, so Jesus is talking here in verse 27. If you don't have red letters, just keep in mind, Jesus is the one <coughs> preaching here. And you remember, he is preaching like no rabbi before. No rabbi would talk like this. None. Let me illustrate. When, in the time of our Lord Jesus Christ, when a rabbi would teach, the rabbi would never say like Jesus says, but I say to you. The rabbi would simply say, now Rabbi Cohen says, and he'd quote Rabbi Cohen. Or he would say, now Rabbi Leibowitz says, and he'd quote Rabbi Leibowitz. Jesus doesn't do that. Look at verse 27. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. And they're probably going, yep, that's right, that's right. And I've never done that, never done that. They're all, okay. And now Jesus says what no rabbi would ever say, because he's God in the flesh. Verse 28, I tell you, rabbi would never talk like that. But Jesus does, because he's God. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his. So has Kuhlman broken the sick? Yep, yep. Now make the distinction here. There are many women who are very beautiful, and I can make this observation that this woman is very beautiful, and I haven't broken the commandment. But in my heart, when I say, well, I'd like to have her, bingo, broken the commandment. Make sense? That's why I've broken it. That's why you've broken it, even if you've never taken someone else to bed. 
Make sense? That's why when we looked at, uh, what was it page 151 and page 184, etc., that beginning of the service, we, we confess that we are sinful in thought, word, and deed. Okay, back to 2 Samuel. All right, so he sleeps with her. That's verse 4. Then she goes back home. And look at verse 5. As a result of this one-night stand, she's now pregnant. So this is an illegitimate pregnancy. Why? Because Uriah is not the father. David now is. And notice in verse 5, she sends word back to David and says, I'm pregnant. Now this is a huge problem because David is not just king, but he's also to be the, the best example of what it means to be a believer. And now he's done something very bad. Now he's got to hide it. So now David's going to, he's going to set up a plan to try and hide the fact that he has committed the adultery and that he is the father of this child. He doesn't want anybody to know about it. So he sets up a plan. Let's check it out, verse 6. So David sent this word to Joab. Send Uriah the Hittite. Now don't you find this interesting? Uriah is not an Israelite. He is a Hittite, which means he's a mercenary. But he's a Hittite. So send me Uriah the Hittite. That's Bathsheba's husband. And Joab sent Uriah to David. Now verse 7. When Uriah comes to him, David asked him how Joab was. You know, small talk. How are things going, bud? How's the general doing? And how the soldiers were. Because they're at war, remember? How's, how's, the, how's the battle doing? And how the war was going. And then David says to Uriah, the soldier, the mercenary, go down to your house and wash your feet. Now, wash your feet is a euphemism. It's a Hebrew euphemism. Wash your feet here doesn't mean now go home and literally take a bar of soap with, with a pan of water and wash your feet and then dry them off with a towel. You hear that in English, but that's not what it means. Wash your feet means go and sleep with your wife. Go home and be intimate with your wife. That's what that means in Hebrew. See what David's doing? He's got her pregnant. Now he's got to cover it up. So we'll call the husband home from the, from the battle, from the war. Go home, buddy. Be with your wife. Now, normally speaking, any soldier who gets this opportunity will jump at the chance. Bingo. I'll be there. Woohoo! Right? Let's see what happens. Now, remember, he's a Hittite, not an Israelite. So Uriah leaves the palace, reading verse 8 again, and David sends a gift. What's the word you'd use? Sending a gift. What would you call that? Well, not necessarily a bribe, but uh, does the deal. What do you say when you're doing a deal and you send a gift? Uh, forget, I forget the language. Well, he's, he's trying to entice him to do this by giving him a gift. Well, not necessarily bribery, but an incentive. Yeah, this is an incentive all the more to go home and, and be with Bathsheba. So, verse 9 does Uriah go home? No. He sleeps at the entrance to the palace with all of David's servants, and he doesn't go home. Now keep in mind that when he sleeps at the entrance of the palace, David would be able to see it. So plan A is what? To cover up the sin. Send the man home. He'll sleep with his wife. 
When the baby bump starts showing, everybody in Israel will say, oh, we remember Uriah came home and now they're expecting a child. Wow, wonderful. And who's off the hook? David. You see how sinners try to justify themselves instead of telling the truth? So he won't tell the truth. He wants to cover it up. And this is why in Psalm 51 he prays, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Because he learned that as he lived this way, he was in deep trouble. Make sense? Okay, let's keep going. Got to find the right verse here. So plan A fails. Uriah didn't go home. Now verse 10. David's told, Uriah didn't go home. Haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark, what's the ark? That's the ark of the covenant. Israel would always take the Ark of the Covenant to battle because that was God's throne. And so they would carry God's throne whereby God would be there with them and then God would fight their battles for them. Israel always had to learn. When you study your Old Testament, Israel relied on the Lord to fight their battles for them. How did the Lord fight the battles for them? Using the Israelites to do it, however. So that's why they would take the Ark. Now, interesting, the Hittite says the Ark and Israel and Judah, that means all the people of Israel, are staying in tents. And my master Joab, remember that's the general, and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? See, that's what wash your feet means. As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Now Uriah's not making this up. This isn't, well, I can't go home because, no, this was the law of the land. No soldier, whether it was an Israelite soldier or mercenary, could, while the war was being done, could go home on furlough and be with his wife or family because that was unfair to everybody else who was in the battle. And, jo and Uriah knows this. So you see what the Hittite's doing? He's actually quoting the law of the land to the king of Israel. And he's not even an Israelite. See the twist in this story? <laughs> I love it. It's just delicious. Let's keep going. So plan A's failed, so David's going to put plan B into effect to try and get Uriah to go home. Verse 12, then David said to him, you stay here one more day, buddy, and tomorrow I'll send you back, okay? I realize you need to get back to the battle, but just stay one more day, okay? So Uriah remains in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now plan B goes into effect. Verse 13, at David's invitation, he ate and drank with Uriah, and David gets Uriah drunk. Now, anyone knows, generally speaking, when you get a soldier drunk and you tell him to go home and be with his wife, bingo, I'm there. Nothing's stopping me. See what David's doing? So that's plan B. Get him drunk and tell him to go home. Let's, let's keep reading. Uh, but in the evening, where does Uriah go? He goes out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He does not go home. Plan A fails, plan B fails. Plan B was get him drunk. So now plan C's got to go into effect. And this is where it even gets more disastrous. Verse 14, in the morning, David writes a letter to Joab and he sends it with who of all people? With you, he gives the letter to Uriah. And in this letter, David wrote to Joab, Put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest 
then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So David is planning to do what with Uriah? Murder him and make it look justified. Because oh, that's just how it goes in war. Nothing I can do about it. I'm in Jerusalem. I can't do anything about that. That's how you'll spin this, right? So this is plan C. Verse 16. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Now I want you to observe that not only Uriah dies, but there are other soldiers who die as well. Now we read this quickly and we miss this point. So I want to spend just a moment on this. Look again, verse 17. Some of the men in David's army fell. So not only is Uriah murdered in this plan, but now in order to get Uriah murdered, other men die. So I want you to realize that not only does David break the fifth commandment against Uriah, but against other families who lose their husbands and fathers to make sure that Uriah gets killed. You see this? This is big, big trouble. Any questions about this so far? <laughs> See what sinners will do to justify themselves? They'll murder. Which again, uh, Jane's revenge, Ruth sent us, and the warnings that they now write on buildings. If you don't know what I'm talking about, well, you can talk about it privately. But these are people who want to murder and make sure that children continue to be murdered in the womb. And they are telling pro-life people, that uh, we're going to kill you. To justify the murder of children in this country, Ruth sent us, if you haven't, look it up, Google it, Jane's Revenge. These are terrorist organizations in the United States. They are warning us and they write it on buildings. Maybe some of you have seen this. We're coming after you. Why? Because they're not, they, 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 they're not concerned about children being murdered, so why would they concern about harming you? They're not. They're not. That's a side note to illustrate this point from Scripture. That David is willing to murder anybody to justify his sin and make himself look good in front of people. Because he's got to in his eyes. Let's continue. Verse 18. So Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger. When you finish giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerob-Besheth? Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Oh, Uriah got killed. And then, oh, oh, yeah, well, that's, I guess that's okay. See the game they're playing? It's like, you should have never done that. That's not how we fight. Oh, but Uriah got killed. Oh. See this? The messenger set out, verse 22, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, the men overpowered us and, we, and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance to the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. 
And David then tells the messenger what? Does he rebuke the messenger? What does he do? Say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. Oh, good grief. You know, the sword devours one as well as the other. In other words, that's just how it goes. It is what it is. That's how we say it, right? Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. See, it's all a game. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourns for him. Then verse 27, check it out. After the time of mourning is over, David then brings her to his house, marries her, and then she gives birth. Now, I want to stop and pause there for just a moment. So plan C works. He gets, he gets rid of Uriah. Bathsheba mourns. And after her time of mourning is over, and she takes off all the black veil and all that kind of stuff, then David says, I'll take care of you. And then he marries her. Now, can you imagine what the uh, Jerusalem palace spin machine does with this? I can tell you what they probably did with it. Oh, what a wonderful king we have. Oh, how he takes care of the war widow Bathsheba. That poor woman just lost her husband in war. And now this king has such pity on her. He marries her. And oh, go praise be to God for King David. Now they're expecting their first child. Oh, isn't this wonderful? That's no doubt how it got spun, but now we know how God, what God thinks about it. That's the end of the chapter. Do you see it? The end of verse 27. The thing David had done displeased who? The Lord. Now that sets this Bible story up, you see, for the next chapter. So from chapter 11 to chapter 12, an entire year passes by. And David thinks he's gotten away with it. He doesn't. If you would, please take a look at the sheet before we start chapter 12. Take a look at the sheet and look at page 2. And I want to just simply summarize again what I, what I spoke, about, spoke about earlier. So I'm, I'm looking at, at the end of Psalm 51 on page, page 2, where it says, why read this psalm? Again, I want to redo this to summarize what I've covered with you this morning. I want to make sure you've got these points down pat. We read this psalm because David wrote Psalm 51 in reaction to the events recorded in these chapters that we're studying in 2 Samuel. So consequently, we read 2 Samuel 11 and 12 in connection with Psalm 51 to set forth the correct biblical teaching regarding the nature of our sin, our sinfulness, and repentance. Not only does David indeed, not only does David sin in deeds, but he is sinful in nature, Psalm 51, 5. In other words, the sinful deeds flow from his sinful nature. He sins because he is a sinner. And, we, and as we will see, David not only sinned by coveting Bathsheba, 10th commandment, adulterating, 6th commandment, his and her marriage, and then 5th commandment, murdering Uriah. Sorry for the typos. But also by wanting to appear in public as what? As a holy man by taking Bathsheba into his home and marrying her. Again, we, we read these stories not to, not to say, well, I'd never do that. No, it's just the opposite. Through these stories, God teaches us that we are no better than David and we do the very same things. And God, through his word, is trying to always, like with King David, repent us, faith us, and lead us in holy living. Let me say another thing about this, if I may. Um, stories are very important. I am convinced now, all the more, that the Old Testament Bible stories and the New Testament Bible stories that we have in the Bible are written for a reason. 
in, let me put it this way, in, in the form that they're written. They're written in stories. Why? I'll tell you why. Because people and children can remember stories. And the stories teach. They give you a God view of life. Of not only yourself, but of God himself. So, I don't know if you've heard this language. Uh, people today, as, they, as we observe things in this, in this world, we, we say this, that people have lost a biblical worldview. I think that's true. And why is that? It's because people don't know the stories anymore. So what I'm trying to say not very well is, parents, grandparents, please, I'm begging you, make sure your children and grandchildren know the stories. When they learn the stories, they learn the truth about God, who he is, and who you are, and how God treats you, especially here. So I think one of the biggest crises we now face in our country and in the church is the illiteracy of knowing the, we don't know the stories. And if you don't know the stories, you don't know the truth. And then somebody else tells a different story. And it isn't a biblical story. It's a story that comes either from their head or their heart, and it doesn't agree with these stories. I hope this makes sense. <laughs> so many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You grew up reading the Old Testament Bible stories, and you knew the stories, and therefore you learned what, who God is, and etc. You just knew it. Any questions about that? I got to take a swig. Yes, please. Yes, he was married at the time. That is correct. I'll give you one, one lady's name, he was, and he wasn't married to one. This is another problem in the Old Testament. When you know the stories, you realize that these people are sinners. David was married to King Saul's daughter, Michal. We always pronounce it Michael, but it's Michal, or Michal, okay, in Hebrew. He was married to her and other women. That side note on this, Abraham, he did the same thing. Solomon, same thing. They broke the sixth commandment by marrying other women. By the way, Solomon... Solomon's th hundreds, if not thousands, of marriages to other women, pagan, unbelieving women, led Israel into idolatry. Is that what Mormonism is? Well, Mormonism is just, well, Mormonism, yeah. Joseph Smith, I, I don't know about Joseph Smith, Smith particularly quoting the Old Testament stories to, to uh, promote polygamy, but there's no doubt he would say, well, Abraham did it. That's, I, there's no doubt he'd say that. But that's just the old Adam going wild in league with the world and Satan. Yeah, he was married. Yeah, he was. Quick, quick story here. So some of you know Pastor Deloach, who used to be the pastor of Manuel Lewisville. He now serves in Zion Kearney. He was called one night to a house of a, of a man and his family. And so he went to the house, and lo and behold, the man wanted Pastor Deloach to approve of his desire to be with other women, to be a polygamist. And Pastor Deloach said, no, that's not God-pleasing. You don't want to do that. And what did this man do? He quoted the Old Testament. Well, Abraham did it. David did it. The point we have to say to these people is, they sinned in this matter. <laughs> and by the way, I, we'll have a good laugh in heaven if you want to. Have a good laugh with Abraham and Sarah in heaven. And they'll tell you that when we did that, that was not good. It ruined our lives. You know this, don't you? Abraham, Hagar. Hagar had a son named Ishmael. How, how, was, how did Sarah treat Hagar and Ishmael? Well, not very good. And you know why. Because there's rivalries. 
all this sister wife stuff and big love stuff that's on HBO and TLC. It's a joke. It's a lie. It's a lie to, think you, to make you think. And the men love it, by the way. The men love it. The women know better. They know that this is stupidity because they know that if men want several wives, it ain't going to be good, just humanly speaking. Because he's going to love one more than the other, and they, they're going to know that. It's not, you know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> What's that? Once enough, he said. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry. Hard enough for one. Let's, let's say it positively. The joy of one is enough. <laughs> I know, I'm, I'm, digging, I'm digging a deep hole this morning. Oh, my goodness. All right, so that next paragraph on page two. So David's wrongdoing also illustrates the tyrannous, tyrannous, or tyr- I, I can't even speak anymore, the tyrannous power of sin and Satan. So we need to be reminded from this story of the necessity of clinging to Jesus and depending upon the power of the Holy Spirit for our lives. David was an enormously great man. However, when God removed his support, David fell into great sin. So as we read 2 Samuel in light of Psalm 51, we should apply David's experience with Bathsheba, Uriah, and Nathan to ourselves because we're not any different as I tried to illustrate. Now the kids have come in, so this is a good place to stop. Do you have any questions before we pray and get ready for church? Yes, please. The question is, is killing ever justified? Yes. Yes. Uh, For example, in Romans chapter 13, God has instituted governing authorities to punish criminals. And that would include death. And you might say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's breaking the fifth commandment. Not in this case. Why not? Because God is the one who's actually punishing the criminal through the authorities put in their proper vocation. So for example, let's say for example, example, you have a criminal who is a murderer, and the sentence is guilty and death by lethal injection. So the doctor who is there and injects the needle into the arm or however they do it, maybe it's the IV, the doctor who does that does not break the fifth commandment. Why not? Because the doctor is God's hands to punish this criminal. And in that case, the fifth commandment is not broken. Now, however, what if Kuhlman takes matters into his own hands? I'm not the doctor, and I'm not the judge, and I'm not the jury. But if I take matters into my own hands, again, the example would be, what if I go home tomorrow night and find my wife murdered in cold blood? And I take matters into my own hands, find out who did it, and I take my nine millimeter and blow his head off. Then I've broken the fifth commandment. Because I don't have the authority to punish the criminal. God gives certain people authority to do it. That's people in the civil realm, like judges, juries, execution. And that, in that sense, the fifth commandment is not broken. Does that answer your question? Okay, self-defense. Yep. Exactly. And so God has given us civil authorities. They have passed laws so that you can protect yourself against lethal harm. And so in that case, it's okay to do that. And, and the authorities will say that was justified. Yeah, please. Well, I'm not sure where it's at, but isn't there a Bible verse that says, um, if man kills man by man's hand, shall he die? Yeah, that's Genesis, right after, right after uh, um, Cain and Abel, etc. 
because Cain, of course, committed the first murder. Cain had no authority to kill his brother, but he did. Yeah. So that, and that, that applies to people who have not been given the authority of God to, to punish criminals. So I can't pull a Barney Fife in the sense of I take matters into my own hands. Because I'm, I'm not an officer of the law, I'm not a judge, I'm not a jury. But those people have been given that, that to do. And that's, you, have to, you have to explain that to people because a lot of people will say, okay, you Christians, you're all against abortion, but a lot of you Christians are all for capital punishment. What's with that? The issue is vocation. Vocation, not vacation, vocation. Who's been given the authority to either protect life or punish it? Okay, I hope that was helpful to some degree. Anything else? All right, let's pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, 